So hello and welcome to this week's episode of Prep to Pivot. And this week we have with us our expert guest, Mr. Abhinav Ravi, who's going to be talking about the CEO's role today. He works in the CEO's office in the strategy and operations role at Practo. Prior to this, he worked as a financial consultant at Deloitte in the restructuring international systems domain. He also holds an MBA from the Indian School of Business. He's a writer, influencer, and a member of India's first LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program. Outside work, he's an ace shuttler, a passionate musician, and a travel enthusiast. So, Abhinav, you made a pivot in both industry and role from a financial role as an assistant manager in, a re- in restructuring to a strategy role at the CEO's office. So, how did you make this pivot? And in particular, what did you think were the necessary skills for you to pivot? Yeah, uh, thanks, Sushira. So, I think, uh, like you mentioned, right, there is, if you look at it uh, purely, uh, on paper, in terms of designations, it does look like a fairly radical switch from like so I was at Deloitte, or a big four company, uh, in a financial advisory role in a fairly niche area of restructuring. Uh, and now I'm in a very broad, open-ended strategy and operations role uh, in a CEO's office team. Uh, but I think more than uh, looking at it just in terms of those classifications, you need to get into what each of these roles entails. So for example, at Deloitte as well, even though it said financial advisory, uh, let's say on the job description, uh, I would say about 20 to 30% of my job even there was of a strategic nature. Uh, in the sense it was about finding out which, how do we approach new clients, what are our potential clients and regions, do we pitch to them which services work for them at the right time, uh, what is the hiring we need to do to be able to provide certain services and so on. Right? Uh, it was admittedly a smaller part of my job, like I said, about 20 to 30%, while the remaining 70 odd percent was executing client deliverables, which was the financial advisory part of it. Uh, but what I realized during my three years with Deloitte was, even though I was good at the financial advisory part of it, what I really enjoyed was the broader uh, strategic elements of it. So I think that thought process and that exposure to that little bit of work was the first indicator for me that that's what I want to do more of uh, coming into ISB and uh, post ISB as well. Uh, I think at, at some level, that experience also is one of the reasons I was able to make the transition so due throughout my recruitment process uh throughout my interviews there were obvious questions about why i'm applying for this role and why i'm a suitable person for this role and i think talking about those strategic experiences that i had in my previous role uh plays a big part uh in that just my professional experience though because i understand not everyone may have that in their past right you might come from a very technical background or a pure play finance background for example uh i think with strategy roles uh, in my opinion, at the very least, 80% of it, if not more, is behavioral, right? Do you have the drive? Do you have the creativity? Do you have that? Are you even nagging enough, uh, for lack of a better word, to be like, there is not a solution to this problem, but I will keep chipping away at it till I find one, right? And very honestly, that's a personality trait as much as anything else. So anything you can do to, uh, from a long-term basis to refine that personality trait, and in a short term basis, you have that to display it, right? And you can display it uh, through your work, through your extracurriculars, through your clubs, through your sports, whatever it may be. Uh, funnily enough, a huge part of my interview process with the CEO himself uh, in my final round was me talking about playing badminton, which might seem incredibly relevant to a strategy role or any role for that matter. Uh, but yeah, that that aspect of my life, which is an important aspect, highlighted a lot of behavioral things about me, which, yeah, I think those worked in my favor. All right. So I think uh, from your answer, what I get is that there were a lot of transferable skills from your previous job, even though it was in a different industry and domain. 
but along with that you also complemented it with uh, the soft skill or the power skills rather which were your behavioral skills so um, uh, with respect to the work that you do a very basic question that a lot of listeners have with respect to strategy roles in general is how do you define the strategy of a company in particular where exactly does this sit between the vision and the mission of a company so i think funnily enough strategy has this notion of being uh it has a notion it is in my mind of sometimes being very generic uh and also being very up in the air for lack of a better word right is just things people put on slides while actually other people do the real work right and that's often a perception you might have during strategy courses at an mba right like ha huh, some company did this they did that and you feel like your finance and marketing and other places are where you're getting into the nitty gritties uh but funnily enough it's been just over a month uh, at my role i've not seen a single ppt slide so far right and i don't think they make them here uh, so i think the strategy role is exactly what you said right there is a mission statement uh, but that mission statement once you actually enter the office is broken down into very very specific numbers and tasks and deliverables right uh, everything in my role and i would assume in similar roles across the board is astonishingly data driven uh, so there's an element that you might think like i said you think the strategy is generic that you'll walk into a meeting and be like we should utilize our resources better that's not what happens right uh, you are getting into the finest and minutest of decimals of data points and acting upon it so uh, but coming back to larger point i think what a strategy role for me has been so far uh, is firefighting most of it right uh because it is broad is i'm not denying that but it is specific within that broadness right so if there are uh, let's say broadly about seven to eight key departments uh, in my company which are working at when i say departments i essentially mean business lines right so uh sales marketing category product tech analytics and so on uh all of them are contributing towards that one central mission of whatever the company is but at every point in time one of them is facing a slightly more critical issue than the others everyone is always facing issues and i believe that's true in every company but on that day in that week there is something which requires more immediate attention the and the than others and that is where the strategy team steps in uh so let's say let's say marketing is facing some issues there's 10 people on the marketing team who are working on it. but if in a particular week something broke those 10 guys need a little bit of help whether that's just an external set of eyes whether that's just more manpower whether that's a different perspective from someone who knows about sales who knows about tech who knows about product we are helping bring those insights to the other teams and bring it all together okay so um just to extend what you were talking about when you said in the, you know the way that you break down the mission and you sort of put numbers to it so one question that i had is that when you're formulating a strategy how do you balance the long term vision with the short term goals especially in such a data driven environment to be honest almost exactly like you said it right uh, in a literal sense of if i look at even my day to day over the last few days uh, there are again on a daily weekly if not daily basis we identify levers that's what we call them for improvement right and that could be anywhere across uh, the board so i think long term and short term uh, it's often not a case of i want to do this in 3 months and i want to do this tomorrow it is in fact it just builds on the fact i can do this tomorrow and this will take me 3 months to do in an ideal world every long term ambition for growth you would want to do it tomorrow but just it cannot reasonably happen in a day or a week or a month and therefore you are forced to call it long term in reality we would love to do it tomorrow if we could so even my day is almost split uh, i don't know 50 50 60 40 whatever you want to call it 
between we've identified four problems three of them i can solve today so i will spend x amount of time solving it today one of them i know it's going to take me a month irrespective so i'll dedicate some portion of my day to chipping away at it so that we get there next week or next month it's not uh again in my experience also you do have end goals that you want to hit this number a year from now and so on uh but the, there's also an interesting thing which again is a terminology i picked up after coming here of output metrics and input metrics right uh, we think of strategy as output metrics that you want to hit this much revenue this much sales this much profit but that's that's just a thing that might happen you have no control over output metrics what you have control over is input what can we do to get those numbers up or down uh, and and those input metrics are what i told you right some of them you can execute in a day some you can execute in a quarter uh, and it's just a function of the same it's it's never a case of yeah this is a nice idea but why don't we do it three months later no one's ever going to think like that in my experience all right so what i'm understanding from what you're saying is that prioritizing your tasks is what really helps you uh, split the tasks into what are the have to do today and what can be done tomorrow in terms of splitting it between the short term and the long term strategy so um that brings me to my next question which is what does a typical day at the ceo's office look like that's a very good question clearly it's long given that i'm still here <laughs> but uh so so it's it's funny you know because uh in a way i since i'm not a part of a specific team like i said sales marketing tech so on and so forth uh i don't really have targets or deliverables in a very specific manner for my team or for myself uh, our job is to help all the other teams hit their targets in a way uh so to answer your question a lot of my day is spent with other people in other teams uh whether that's listening to their feedback and their activities and trying to give them inputs or helping them out with problems which they don't have the bandwidth to solve uh or, or very often just making sure since we're part of the ceo's office the ceo himself obviously has a lot more responsibilities right so he can't be in every meeting and in every room and in every discussion so it is gathering that information and insights and the analysis on his behalf and then sharing it with him maybe at the end of the day or the next day uh so again if i had to put numbers to it and this changes radically day on day uh i would say about anywhere between 2 to 4 hours of it is spent in meetings with various teams and uh people uh another 2 to 4 hours is spent just on my own on my laptop actually doing the either the number crunching or whatever it is the analysis i'm supposed to be doing uh and very often it's a couple of hours of just sitting with my teammates or other people then uh as vague as this may sound thinking about solutions because that's what it is right that is the strategy role is not uh the one stark difference i have here compared to my old job is uh even though that was challenging in different aspects there was it was standardized there's a template there's a format there's a slide deck if you're good enough you can fill up the blanks in your screen right and you get to that stage after the point whereas here the problems you're solving and you're facing on a day to day basis you did not know they existed 3 hours ago uh here doing the excel is a half an hour one hour thing what do you put on the excel is what takes a few hours very often uh so yeah as vague and lazy as it may sound thinking about stuff also takes up a probably an hour couple of hours uh, every once in a while all right so uh, i don't think lazy would define it because to be honest the thinking actually uses the brain the most at least that's from my experience at isb so it's actually interesting that you talked about one aspect which is that you as your team actually helps other teams reach their targets because the next question which i had in mind for you was to understand what are the kpis of someone in a strategy role that's the question i'm 
trying to get an answer to myself you know i, I don't know uh, but uh, to be very honest it is again this is going to sound incredibly generic but this is what has been told to me as well that it's adding value uh, and as vague as that my team i'm seeing that in reality through the more senior people in my team who've been here longer than me and who are more experienced than me as well right it is and i think the great thing about uh, no what is the strategy role and i think this is a function of the culture here at my company which is great is an openness to feedback and ideas right too so for me as someone with absolutely no experience in my life of anything related to sales i can walk into a sales leadership call and go to the head of sales and say hey i think this approach is wrong why don't you try this now it's possible what i said is utter rubbish and he will tell me that politely but the point is we we have created an environment where all ideas can be shared uh so uh, while that's not a kpi so honestly i don't have quantifiable kpis i don't think i do at the very least at least so far i have nothing uh but i think and that comes back this ties back to what i said right at the start about behavioral traits right i think a huge part of uh this these kind of roles uh, ceos of strategy in general but especially the ceos office kind of roles is effort right uh, i'm not expected to solve every problem there but i'm putting in a shift to try to find it fair enough like i said right again input and output metrics i cannot double the company sales the company sales might double with or without me in it but am i putting in the work every day to try to help us get there right as far as i can understand it that's that's all that i mean that's all i can do on a factual basis and i think that's all that people really care about uh, obviously some level of competency and knowledge comes into the piece uh, but again how quantifiable that is i'm not really sure okay i think that that gives a lot of clarity to that answer so like you just now mentioned like you can just walk into a sales leadership call or you can walk into a call with say an advertising head or a finance head so one of the things that i realized from your answers is that balancing multiple stakeholders and switching hats like thinking from the perspective of someone from ops from finance from hr to strategy is a given in the role like you described so how do you build up that relevant yep. expertise in each of these kind of domains so that you can communicate with your diverse group of colleagues at the same level at which they speak the lingo yeah so uh, a couple of things on that right first i don't think i have remotely any expertise in any of these let me be very honest uh, finance funnily is not one of our departments here i mean there is obviously a finance department but it doesn't work in the ops space so i have nothing to do with finance and that is my background right so i know nothing about any of the departments i work with plus i know nothing about the industry i'm a part of absolutely no correlation uh but i think what what you realize and you know this as well right when you work in any job again this is an on personal opinion and it might not be true but in business world 85 80% of it is common sense uh like it's it's how do people behave why do people buy things how do you sell more things Uh, what works what doesn't work right it's genuinely 80% of it is that in my opinion so i and i absolutely agree with you i don't understand technical terminologies right so for marketing for example because thankfully i've done an mba i understand something about scms and search queries and bidding for all of these things we took a course about that but do i know how to execute it of course not. but but can i look at those three classifications see what they're trending at find some holes in them and they point out those holes to marketing that's my point right my point is not to solve marketing uh, or give them a solution my point is to be like hey maybe this is one thing we can look at and then they will tell me how to look at it right or they will tell all of us how to look at it 
right? So I'm not expected to go into a tech team and write a code which is better than the guys who've been working there for ten years. Absolutely not. Uh, so I don't think expertise is mandated or even required, frankly, to an extent. Understanding process flows is very important, uh, and that takes a bit of time. Like I can see uh, on that front a significant increase in just my comfort around understanding what my company does and how that flows every single week. Like week one, I was I was pulled into these leadership meetings for my first day, and I on the fourth throughout the first week I didn't understand half the short forms on the Excel, right? Uh, and I have no idea what anyone's talking about. To fast forward four weeks, I'm understanding and I'm able to contribute to them. And I'm sure that will increase as time goes by. Uh, so yeah, ex technical expertise is out of question, to be honest. I don't have it. I don't think I'm ever going to get it. And I don't need it either in this particular space. Uh, understanding the lingo, again, is more about understanding the company lingo vis-a-vis -vis the industry or the function lingo. Uh, because... Again, it's their job to translate what I'm telling them in a company terms into their technical terms and then report back in company terms to the rest of the group in, in some level. All right. So I think that quite solidifies what we discussed about what is the scope of your job in the CEO's role, really. So I'd like to move on from the job description, so as to say, to the interview process, because while the PM or the consulting interview processes are widely discussed and debated, the placement process yeah. for strategy roles are not very common. So could you walk us through your placement journey? How did you prepare? What was the interview process or questions like? Okay, uh, I'm going to be incredibly honest in the spirit of whatever. Uh, I did I did not prepare for strategy interviews because like you, I said, what and no one could give me an answer. And I, I tried. I asked seniors, I asked my batchmates. No one could tell me a specific way about how to prepare. But uh, for what is worth, I can tell you what I think works or what works for me. Uh, number one, I think consulting prep is a good place to start. Right? Uh, for two reasons. Even Genman, uh, Genman is what this is bucketed under very often. Interviews often have cases. Maybe not as elaborate or as long. And they won't be as much of a part. But they will. Like I had a guesstimate in my first round here as well. Right. It was a five-minute thing, but it came up. So I think that it helps because cases can come up. Uh, secondly, also, a lot of the people here are former consultants, so they have that inbuilt in the system, the people who are interviewing them. Uh, and the second reason, I think if you do a good number of consulting case preps, apart from case solving, it does sort of help refine your communication a bit. Just in terms of structured flow, how are you spelling things out, how are you breaking down on... Uh, even if it's talking about your resume, right? Like breaking down a, a complicated case in 30 seconds or a minute is not very dissimilar from breaking down three years of experience in 30 seconds to a minute, right? So I think that's a good starting point in terms of intentional effort. Uh, beyond that, I think a couple of things which I am, I strongly believe in, I don't know if they work for me. I mean, I'm here, but I don't know if these things work for me specifically, is... Uh, I'm a big believer of not uh, shying away from your non-professional aspects, which are a big part of your personality, right? If you have them. If you don't, then that's fine. Uh, and third, I think just being a little honest, even if that seems uh, to the point of seeming, I don't use the word unprofessional because then people think I'm, uh, people think I mean being rude, but not being very polished is fine. Right, you know, you need to know whether line is right. You can't like talk like you're talking to your sibling or something, but you should also talk human because I feel not just for Genman but for any interview in the world, people forget 
it seems to be like people think interviews are a test of skills and competency and intelligence and whatever problems only but you forget that the person interviewing you at some level is also thinking i need to sit sit next to this person every day and tolerate them for 10 hours right so if you're the smartest person in the room but you come across as a really annoying person or a very whatever cocky person or just someone you wouldn't want to sit next to the best way i can put it you're probably not going to get it right because again it's it's amazing how much people underestimate that part of it uh, so i think just being normal uh, laughing about things saying you overslept if you did what well, like i know these are like uh, random examples i'm giving you but it's important and i think my default setting is that i'm not very good at picking up a farce even if i try to uh, so yeah, i think that worked pretty well like my first round i don't think anything personal really came up it was a fairly quick interview to the point work x y are you playing why are you interested uh and the guesstimate but my second and third rounds which were like 45 minutes plus each uh one with a vp and one with the ceo himself were very open ended like uh, i remember so since i'm in healthcare right i think there was a question about why healthcare uh in my second round and his the premise of his question was you you're from a consulting advisory background i he is known for consulting advisory you have an ideal profile for consulting you'll get in why are you interested here uh and and my honest answer was that in my old job i did all this client work which was so much up in the air and everything would actually happen to it and with healthcare and education are the only two places where i'm like i'm doing something here i can see the result on the street once i leave and that sounds like maybe a very whatever cheap answer but it was true like i was sick of doing things up in the air this guy couldn't see any results uh so that came up he asked me like there was funny things that he asked me if you're joining a startup are you afraid of uh losing your job or what will happen to you in case things go down or something along those lines right and again i might have given a very polished answer about whatever and i very frankly said no i know i'm good enough to get employed when i want to i mean again that might come across cocky but it's a fact right i i mean it's that's something that came out and and i mentioned earlier as well right in my ceo's round out of the half an hour plus conversation we had 20 minutes of it was me talking about badminton uh which might seem like a very stupid thing to do but he asked me do you like i had mentioned about sports on my resume that's where it came up uh and he asked me why do you like sports why is it important to you and i could have just said oh because fitness is nice or some generic crap like that but no i went into how it's been a part of me since childhood it's helped me through certain things and yeah, as far as i'm concerned that's where we connected and i don't know maybe he hated that i don't know like i don't have they don't give you a feedback form after the interview that this is why we hired you uh but there's something i have always stuck to when wherever it's worked out for me in the past uh, in the couple of jobs i've had it's where i've had fairly vulnerable interviews so yeah i think in genman especially that comes out a little more because of what i said that people are basically looking for character personality traits and not hard skills consulting pm finance like you said you can be the sweetest guy in the room if you can't build a cash flow statement you're not getting it sorry right or whatever the equivalent is but yahan par hard skills you can learn in a week or couple of weeks but if you've not got that attitude fit then you're not going to last i think that personality fit is exactly what you're going for and so outside your professional work you have a very impressive 40k plus following on linkedin and you're also a part of india's first linkedin creator accelerator program so my next question to you is what inspires you to write on such a myriad of topics uh again it's perhaps not the most inspirational answer but it started out of boredom 
so I think I started writing on LinkedIn a little after we went into lockdown. I might be wrong about this. Yeah, I think it was around July 2020. Uh, because I had time on my hand. My job didn't require a lot of my time. We were in a downward spiral uh, and there wasn't a lot else to do. And I think what uh, what it started off with was I was about two years into my job then. It was my first job uh, out of undergrad. And uh, I, again, uh, pardon my lack of humility here, I did really well at that job in those first couple of years at the very least. Uh, and I would see stuff about people reaching out to me sometimes or even the resumes that would come through our team right when we were in a hiring phase. Uh, and some shockingly bad things uh, from a point of view of just prep and approach from either freshers or recent graduates. Uh, but things which are very easy to correct at the same time, right? Uh, like perfectly competent people just not presenting themselves the right way, perhaps. Or people in the who got their jobs and just missing out on a few basic things that could radically make them seem more impressive or better at their jobs. So it's, it started with that, right? My first, I think, month of writing on LinkedIn was a series I started about something like things I learned on my first job or something along those lines, right? Uh, and I've always liked writing. Uh, I've never done it on a platform before, but just I, I read obsessively since I was a kid. So I just enjoy, uh, yeah, I just enjoy writing and reading uh, a lot. Uh, and then, yeah, that somehow picked up traction. I don't really know how or by or when. Uh, and I started enjoying it. And after a point, for a long time, for a good year, year and a half, it just became muscle memory to the point of, uh, yeah, I was posting almost every day, I think, for over a year. And what I realized was the thing that helped me the most was not thinking of LinkedIn as a professional uh, platform, even though it kind of is. Uh, so there was a point where I ran out of things to talk about in terms of first job, my what I learned. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm done here. And then I realized it doesn't have to be that way. So I started writing about whatever I did on a daily basis or something I saw on the street or uh, music I liked or whatever it may be, right? traveling. Uh, and funnily, that is when things really picked up. I realized when I dropped the formal tone, when I dropped the specificity, when I dropped the sort of template kind of a post is when people uh, sort of started liking it. I started getting messages from people. Uh, and, and that's what's nice, right? I mean, there were three categories of messages I feel which helped. Like the first one was people saying, hi, can you write my resume for me? Can you refer me to a job? Which was just annoying and I couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but the second and third was, hey, I've been following you for six months, kind of like what you did, tweaked my approach because of what you said, and I got a job or I got an internship, and that just made my day, right? Uh, and the third was like, not, nothing to do with the professional world, nothing to do with jobs, and like, hey, I just like what you read, made me smile, and that's the highlight for me, right? Getting one message like that a month uh, sort of makes it worth it. Uh, I, I think writing helps here, I mean, in a whether you choose to do it on LinkedIn or in a diary is a different issue. Uh, I just think writing is a massive tool to make you a better communicator, even when you're speaking, when you're presenting, when you're doing anything. Uh, and on that note, I think Ask Yusamanime, especially writing or creating content, especially on LinkedIn from a professional aspect, is helpful. I mean, I never, unlike a lot of people who I know who are very active on LinkedIn and who write as much as me or more, I never had an agenda or an objective. Uh, and I've got nothing against agendas and objectives to be very clear. I think they're good. So I know a lot of people who are active on LinkedIn and they sell through LinkedIn. Right? They're business owners, they're entrepreneurs, they're freelancers and good for them. They are doing amazing work. They're getting generating demand. And I know a lot of people who create content on LinkedIn 
with the somewhat that they intend to break into an industry, break into a job, break into a function. Again, great, good for them. I think they're on the right track. I was in neither category. I was not looking for a job. I had an MBA admin. Wasn't looking for anything. Uh, wasn't selling anything. So uh, I had no incentive, but those incentives still came to me. Like I had people reach out to me with jobs. I had people reach out to me to for offers, offers which I wasn't like. Do you sell this service? And I'm like, no, because I didn't. Like I was just doing it for the fun of it. Uh, funnily enough, so, uh, I don't know if you saw it on my profile. I worked for about three months last year. Uh, within it, uh, a tech startup called uh, FastJobs.io. That's what they called now. It was StartLadder when I worked with them. Uh, and this was a well-funded, outstanding team. Uh, and I was called. And I was I was amongst the first six people on that team. Like literally on week one of the company being founded. I've never met the co-founder, like the CEO. I've never met him. Never spoken to him before. He purely knew me through my LinkedIn content, and he reached out to me because of that. He's like, "Hey, we're starting this company. I think you could be a good fit. Are you interested?" Right, and that's a pretty extraordinary thing if you think about it. Given that I had no interest in, I was not looking for any of these things. Uh, so if you're someone who's looking for things and you make that additional effort to mention you're looking for it, I think yeah, writing and content creation is the most authentic way uh, to do it because uh, when someone sees a resume of yours, for example, right, if I talk from a job perspective, they are judging you over the course of thirty seconds to five minutes, mota moti, one of the ways, right? Even if you got the greatest resume, but if someone's followed your content for six, nine, twelve, eighteen months, they have built a perception of you over a very long time, and they've built a perception not of your achievements, of your personality, of your habits, of your how you treat people, almost to the point, right, with your language, and, and that does come across. So I think that's a lot more endearing to the point where there are people on LinkedIn who have significantly high. I, Okay, I know I have some count of followers, whatever. But in my mind, I have no stature on the platform. Right, I'm a guy who writes. Is my only stature on that platform. There are people with like influential status on that platform who I don't know personally, who I've never met in my life. But I know if I drop them a message, they will reply to me when they won't reply to a lot of other people because they have followed my content over six to twelve months and they know I'm a guy who's trying to help. Uh, so for that reason alone, I think and it's fun. That's also, I think, an underappreciated part of it. It's just fun. Uh, so yeah, that is what motivated me to write. I have to be honest; I've not done a lot of it in the last six months. Uh, like throughout, I have been stuck finding time. Even now, it is stuck finding time. Uh, but yeah, hopefully, I'll get back to it a little more consistently and creatively soon. Absolutely. So I have been one of the people who has been following your content very regularly. Um, and across your articles, I've noticed how you talk about or rather even in your interview with me today you've been quite a strong advocate for what we call soft skills or the power skills so what do you think are some power skills that set you apart and how do you go about honing these skills again i'm perhaps going to give a disappointing answer i don't think i have any that's but i'll be very frank uh but but i Again, I think it's under people overestimate what's important, right? And this might be an MBA bias again, right? Uh, to give you a good example, there's a course called Art of Communication. I really hope you guys have it. We had it in terms of taught by Professor Dhir, uh, which is essentially a public speaking course, right? Uh, and that will teach you about poise and structure and how to stand and how to speak and how many words per minute you're supposed to speak, which are important. But people forget that that's Sure, that's important, but in my mind, that's still twenty to thirty percent of verbal communication, right? Or or even of public speaking. 
uh, I had shared an Instagram post, I think, for your batch. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I had tagged you guys. Where I said the number one thing about being good at what you do and building the right relations and whatever uh, is not being an ass. I don't know if you want to edit that out. I don't know what your language is like. Uh, but I'll rephrase in case you're doing is not being mean to people, right? It's it's that simple, right? It's uh, just trying to be humble and not think of yourself as the best in any room is a great starting point. Uh, I think asking questions with the intent of actually listening to answers and not to prove a point is equally important. And I think giving answers with the intent of teaching someone and not proving yourself right is equally important, right? Uh, and small things like that, it's not some fancy pot speaking or command over the English language at a supreme level and stuff like that that matters. I am, in fact, in many ways the antithesis of a lot of traditional polished communication, right? I'm not, I'm not the most polished. I'm fairly blunt when I speak. And I'm like this even at my job. I'm not always the most properly sort of dressed with my hair comb, all of that crap which you hear about normally probably in presentation. I have none of that, but I think, uh, yeah, I just think I don't have a filter. I think I'm honest and I think I fundamentally try to be nice to people. That's You'll be surprised how much just that much helps, right? And I think if, if that is something you internalize on a personal level, on a day-to-day -day level, again, you'll be surprised how easily that comes across even when you're interviewing for a professional role, right? It's not like someone could ask me, tell me about your favorite ethic principle. That's not going to happen. But it comes across in the way you speak. It comes across in the way you mention other people. It comes across uh, in the way you laugh very honestly. So it's uh, it's just that. It's just don't be a mean person. Just be nice when you can and try to help out. That's Like I said, you'll be surprised at how much that contributes over polished speaking and command over language and uh, whatever other crap they'll try to sell you on. All right. So I think that was a very authentic answer. And it is um, ironical that you did mention that post because my next question is that one of the things that you write quite a lot about is the journey at ISB. And I did read that emotional post that you wrote for our incoming batch. And in hindsight, how would you describe what your one year of transformation was really like? Well, that's, that's a hard question. I think ISB, ISB for me was also paradoxical because it's I got my admit to ISB in 2017, which is a long time ago. I was a YLP admin. So it almost feel like I was before I even reached it. Like four years is a long time. And add in a year and a half of COVID in that felt like a lifetime. Uh, I still remember the day. So the day we got to campus, we went into long. Like we had to quarantine for a week upon arrival. That was our thing. Uh, so on the seventh day, we were let out of the bag. Uh, and I'll never forget, on that day when we were let out and on my last day on campus, uh, I met a couple of my friends uh, who were my classmates who I had also met during my first learning weekend. This is all the way back in 2018, we were called to campus. And I remember us looking at each other and we were like, like on the first day, we were like, see my points here. And towards the end, we were like, yeah, this really happened. Uh, I'm sure that's the experience for everyone. I'm not saying it was just for my LPs, uh, especially with the uncertainty. Uh, but yeah, sorry, uh, coming back to your question, I think ISB was was everything. Right? It was scary, it was intimidating, it was wonderful, it was uh, it was extreme because the people around you are astonishing and I think it's the first time in my life uh, and I think everyone has this that it's an internal human bias, I'm not blaming anyone. If you see someone for 30 seconds, right, very often because of something they say or do or act in that time, you'll be like, 
this is a dumb person or this is a eh person you have that misconception the difference is in my life other places before isb i will spend a year with that person going forward and that hypothesis of mine will to some extent be validated sometimes right at isb every single person like yeah you'll have that right and i'm sure you have you there are times when you look at someone for 30 seconds or a minute or a couple of minutes in some random context you make isko yahan kaise liya you have that it happens and then you spend 10 minutes with them and you'll be like i have no right to be here this person is so much better than me and that happens with everyone every single person there's not one person you'll meet at least in my experience will be like yeah i'm much better than him or her it's just flat out didn't happen with me so i think but what's wonderful about it is you have these on campus 599 better people than you in your mind and all of them are willing to help you and teach you in whatever they are good at right uh, i think that was the most uh, endearing part of it for me and and from a place of genuine help right like it's there are people who do supposedly nice things for on paper credit or for positions and again i have just to clarify i don't have an issue with that as some people might but the number of people who will stay up at 3 in the night and make revision notes and send it across for the batch is not someone doing it for for credit or to write it on their resume right they are like i can help people therefore i will help people and that is an astounding quality to have across 600 people uh so i think that's what surprised me and uh, the most and i love the most the other stuff you have right you know the campus is uh, i can't even get into it uh it's yeah I, i get emotional thinking about the fact that i'm not there anymore like i had you'll find the viewers have been there a couple of months you have spots which are yours you have like this chair in the atrium i will sit on first floor balcony mein jaake wo kone pe i will sit on or uh you'll have quads where you gravitate to like i barely spend any time in my own quad i had a friend in the next block whose place i practically lived in uh uh and yeah i've made friends for like this so i it's there's a lot and i'm telling you all this i've not even gotten into the classes and the academics which are equally extraordinary uh, i'm someone who's a nerd i love my classes right i'm not someone who is like ha ah, classes jaane do i love the academic experience uh so yeah there's there's too much to talk about but yeah i think you know the reality check like no other but I, all, at the same time a reaffirmation that hey maybe i can actually do something decent like you it's funny right you think when you get so many highly competent people in a close space uh that the ego is bursting through the roof and everyone thinks they're great and everything but i think the opposite as what actually happens everyone immediately feels hey maybe we're not so good but towards the end of the year through the support of the others and through your own journey and be like ha huh, i think i'm good enough to make some sort of a difference in the world and i think if you have that uh that's good enough even here i I don't so far feel in my job I'm changing anything that I it's been just a few weeks but I'm like yeah I don't know what I'm doing am I contributing am I making a difference probably not is my gut feeling now but the reassurance that someday I'm capable of making a difference probably comes from my time at IIT uh because I'm like if I was in such a high competent environment and I managed to be decent I can go to other high competent environments and still be decent as well Absolutely I think that uh, sums up every aspect of the mba students life especially at isp and i can hear the nostalgia yeah. in your voice when you speak perhaps yeah. maybe because you can see the quad right behind me as well no oh, yeah, yeah the curtain this funnily that came up in my interview also that uh, i think some i had a late interview one day and he had interviewed a lot of people and the minute my video because we had online interview the minute mm-hmm. my video came on the interview like i've been staring at these curtains for 3 days i'm like sorry that's 
I understand what that's like. Uh, but yeah, uh, hopefully we'll come back on camera. Now, my final question to you, Abhinav, in the Knowledge Nugget segment would be that what would be your advice to someone like me who has just started up on their MBA and is looking to pivot into strategy roles? Uh, so, okay, I'll give you, again, broad and specific answers from a very specific technical action-oriented things. I would say think about your old job and your old work ex and identify what is strategic in that. Uh, aside from that, like the consulting perhaps is a good place to start. Yeah, have... Uh, don't underestimate your diverse experiences as well. All right. Uh, thank you so much for answering all the questions in the, uh, in the Knowledge Nugget segment so authentically. And I'm sure that our listeners will have a lot to take away from what you just said. So we'll head to the Network and Chill Rapid Fire five questions. And if you're ready, I'll start. Cool. Sure. All right. So the first one, what is your most important networking tip for offline events? Don't have any false pretenses. Just be yourself. If that's funny, if that's whimsical, that's how you are. People will like you a lot better. All right. What is one lesson that ISB has taught you that you think everybody should know at some point of time in their life? I think it's if you ask for help, you're more likely to get it than you expect. All right. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would you like to be remembered for? Uh, again, I, I'll, I'll, this may be a lazy way out, but it's true. I think trying to help out people who probably need it. All right. If you had to write a book tomorrow, what would your book be about? Oh, wow, that's a tough one. Because I do like to write and I have wanted to write books. I've always, this is probably not a career answer, but I've always wanted to write like a murder mystery kind of thing. So yeah, I would love to do that someday. All right. And my final question is, what is one question that you wish I had asked you today and how would you have answered it? Yeah, I think you could have asked me when I'm coming back to campus and I would have turned that back to you and tried to force some sort of a thing out of you to get me there next week or next month. Uh, but yeah, like I said, hopefully that's sooner rather than later. Okay. Well, uh, with that, we come to the end of this podcast interview. And thank you so much, Avina, for giving the time on a busy weekday and answering all the questions so authentically. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. Really like this.